be Super Bowl Sunday. You can't go past this day without recognizing that it's the Super Bowl, the one day where we all pretend to care about football, right? Those of you who never watched a football game all season might watch tonight. Um, those of you who love football probably don't really care about these two teams unless you're a big Tom Brady fan as a U of M guy. But uh, we'll all pretend, and really we know that we're more interested in the commercials than anything else. We're more interested in the hype around the Super Bowl really than in the game itself. But it's interesting, I was reading this past week of what an economic monster the Super Bowl has become for our country. A lot of money is going to exchange hands because of the Super Bowl, and some of it is probably yours, right? They say that if you're the average American, you will spend $82.30 today on the Super Bowl, somehow or some way, $82.30. Put that all together with a number of Americans, it's expected that we will be spending, put together, $12.5 billion today on the Super Bowl. That's Billion with a B, not million with an M. Twelve and a half billion dollars. Six hundred million spent on snacks. Get this, 147 million on potato chips. Eleven million pounds of potato chips will be eaten today. Enjoy yours, okay? Domino's Pizza is going to deliver over a million pizzas today. Biggest day of the year for, for takeout pizza. $12.5 billion on the Super Bowl. More than take all the profits of all the NFL teams for the whole season. Doesn't even come close to $12.5 million. All right? That's a lot of money. Now, I'm I'm certainly not against football. I'll be watching the game along with most of you. But I do wonder, is that the best way to spend $12.5 billion? I'm not sure. You know, it's interesting... Large amounts of money can slip through our fingers without us really thinking about it, right? It's interesting because on one hand, we care a lot about our finances and our money. We work hard to earn money. We got financial goals. We put hours of of our lives and tons of our energy into, into gathering it up. And yet we can so easily let it slip through our fingers in ways that that we don't even realize and it just disappears and And it doesn't fulfill the promises that it gives us, right? Money is probably one of the biggest gods in our culture that promises us life, that promises us joy, that promises us contentment. And usually, as it slips through our fingers, we're left with empty promises. Most of us, many of us, are really kind of lost financially. And God wants us, wants to help us find our way. We're in the middle of of this Life Apps series where we're learning there's a verse for that. There's a verse for some really practical learnings for our lives of how God directs us and wants us to live. And this morning, we're looking at our finances. And there's plenty of verses to choose from when you're talking about finances. Because this book, this book, the Bible, has a lot to say about it. But I want you to watch this short video that we found that just kind of scratches the surface piques our interest on what the Bible says about money. Watch this.
right, so we got 800 verses to work through this morning. We might be done in time for the football game. Actually, I figured instead of all 800 verses, you might appreciate one story instead. So take out your Bibles. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me give you some background on this story before we read it. And you want to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be reading different sections at different times. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And Paul at this time is, is busy making making kind of the circuit of visits to the various churches in Asia Minor. He's on, he's on one of his missionary journeys to visit all these churches. And one of the things that he's doing on this visit is he's taking a collection. He's taking an offering from all these churches that he is going to deliver to the Christians in Jerusalem. Because if you were a Christian in Jerusalem at this time, the form of persecution that, that you are facing is financial. Okay, you are losing your jobs, you are losing your livelihood because you are a Christian. So Paul knows that these Christians in Jerusalem are, are extremely poor. So he's collecting an offering from all of these churches. He's going to take it to Jerusalem. That's his end destination. And he knows that it truly is his end destination. He knows he's going to end his life in Jerusalem. Okay, so, so this idea of this offering had first started earlier with the church in Corinth. It was one of his early visits. And they, along with Paul, had made this plan to take this offering. And now Paul is on his way circling back around to Corinth again as he's now heading towards Jerusalem. But now he realized from what he had heard that this eagerness that they had when they started this offering, this eagerness to give, had faded. So Paul sends this letter to them. He's on his way to see them. And he sends this letter to encourage them, as rather well-off Christians as they were in the city of Corinth, to be ready to give again to this offering. So here in chapter 8, Paul tells them of an experience he had with one of these or a series of these small churches up in Macedonia that he had just visited. You see, these churches in Macedonia faced the same problems as the Christians in Jerusalem. The persecution they were facing was financial. They were losing their jobs because they loved Jesus. They were losing their businesses. They were being blackballed because of their faith. So, so these little Macedonian churches were, were as poor as, as the people in Jerusalem. And so Paul, as this visiting preacher as this visiting apostle he, he preaches the sermons he he does his teaching it come he tells them about the offering he's taken and these little churches in macedonia but when it comes to take the offering paul tries to skip it okay they're poor enough as they are he, he knows he really shouldn't be asking them for money so he tells them all about this project and he kind of says them, but you, you really don't have to give because you're facing enough hardship yourself Things don't go as Paul planned. Listen to this. Let's start with just the first five verses of 2 Corinthians 8. He says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. I'll stop there for just a moment. Paul, Paul is shocked and amazed 
uh, these Macedonian Christians, right? He says, out of their severe trial, out of their extreme poverty, they insisted on being generous. And they were joyful in their generosity. They wouldn't let Paul skip the offering, right? He tries to skip. He tries to say, yeah, you don't need to participate. And he says that they pleaded for the privilege. Do you that? Pleaded for the privilege of giving. The whole scene seems backwards, doesn't it? Here's the minister telling people to keep their money, and they refuse. They beg him, please, please take our money. They insist on giving for the good of their suffering brothers and sisters, for the good of the kingdom of God. Paul couldn't stop them, even though he tried. And remember, these people aren't giving out of their surplus. They aren't giving out of their extra. They don't have any extra. They were giving to experience the privilege and the joy of giving. And Paul is stunned. And now Paul turns to these Corinthian Christians. This church is an established church. They're financially secure. And yet they're reluctant givers. They had started the offering, but now they quit before it's done. They easily... These believers in Corinth easily had the means to make a significant difference in the kingdom of God and the lives of the people in Jerusalem. But they had lost all desire. So Paul sends Titus. He sends Titus back to them with this message in verses 6 and 7. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Paul challenges these believers in Corinth to complete their transformation into Christ-likeness. They had let Jesus shape them so much. They were doing so well. They were already excelling in faith. They were excelling in in how they spoke, in their speech. They're excelling in their knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. They're excelling in their love for Jesus and for each other. They were going above and beyond in their commitment to Jesus and obedience to him in all of their lives, except this area, except their finances. They've held back there. They didn't trust God to provide for them. There was still a selfishness. A selfishness and a fear that made them hold on tightly to what they own. And Paul invites them to take a vital step in the discipleship process. He says, if you're going to be a disciple, then part of this discipleship journey is to learn to excel in the grace of giving. That's an invitation they needed to hear. It's an invitation that we need to hear still today. And I'm certain that some of us here in this room are like the Macedonian believers. Right? We have discovered the freedom that comes through giving, the freedom that comes through generosity. We've learned the joy that comes from being generous. And I guess that others of us in this room are a lot like the Corinthian believers. We're excelling in so many ways. We're following God's direction in so many areas of our lives, but we've held back in this area. We're clinging tightly to our possessions and to our money. We share that selfishness or that fear 
that held them back. We haven't learned the grace of giving. And so Paul here lays down the invitation. He lays down the challenge to let God lead in that area of life as well. To listen to God when it comes to money. To, to excel in the grace of giving. And Paul doesn't give that invitation without also giving instructions on how to do that. Instructions on how to give generously. And so in the following verses, we see that Paul dispels three common myths about giving. Myths, beliefs that were holding that Corinthian church back, those Corinthian believers back 2,000 years ago. And some of those same beliefs, those same myths, those misconceptions are holding some of us back today too. So we're going to look at all three of those. The first myth that he dispels comes in verses 8 and 9. Listen to what he writes. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Okay, we... We often buy into the myth that when it comes to giving, God is simply satisfied with our tithe. Right? It's a it's a pretty cut and dried kind of kind of scale here. Right? I was taught to tithe when I was a kid. I remember on Saturday nights when it was time for allowances to be divvied out, my one dollar in allowance came in dimes. So I was ready to give that one dime on Sunday morning. I still tithe today. Right? It's Tithing is correct. It's right. It's an Old Testament principle that Jesus did not take away in the New Testament. Instead, he affirmed it. He, he acknowledged it. He confirmed it for New Testament believers as well. Right? Giving the tithe, giving 10% back to God is what he asked for. He's generous with us. We get to keep 90. He just asks for 10. So if you haven't challenged yourself in the area of tithing, I encourage you to do so. But, Jesus points out that you can meet that 10%. You can tithe, and you can still not satisfy God. He pointed that out to the Pharisees that he was walking with. Right? The Pharisees, who were excellent, they were professional tithers. But they were so good, they tithed every part of their life. When they went to pick the vegetables out of their garden, every 10th cucumber went to God. Every 10th tomato went to God. They were professional tithers, and and God wasn't satisfied with their giving. Because they were following the letter of the law. They were following the command, but they had no love behind it. Excelling in the grace of giving doesn't look only at the financial bottom line. At the end of the year when I did my taxes, did I reach 10%? That's not the only line that we're looking at here. Excelling in the grace of giving looks at the heart behind that bottom line. Excelling in the grace of giving starts by falling in love. By falling in love with God. Because Paul makes it clear here that when you fall in love, then you love to give. You know that with people you know and love. If there's somebody you love, you love to give. You give yourself to them. You give your time to them. You give your stuff to them on their birthday. When you love, you love to give. And so verse 8, Paul says, I'm not commanding you here. I'm not saying here's the command. Now just go do it and get it done. It's not the way it works. Instead, he says, I'm testing the sincerity of your love. 
I'm looking at your heart here. Giving is a natural reflex of a loving heart. We give because we love, and because we love, we love to give. Paul says, look at Jesus. He's the perfect example. Jesus had everything. And he loved you so much that he became poor. He gave everything away. Why? Not because his father commanded him to, but because he loved you. His love was evident in his giving. So we need to know that God isn't looking just for obedience to a command. He's looking for love behind that obedience. Without love, our tithe is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal in the offering plate. So remember, know that excelling in the grace of giving begins by falling in love. Our giving is evidence of how much in love we are. It begins with falling in love with God. It begins with falling in love with God's people, no matter how broken and messy they might be. It begins with falling in love with his kingdom above our own kingdoms. When your love is more and more like Jesus' love, then your giving is to become more and more like Jesus' giving. And so Paul begins by dispelling myth number one. Our giving is not just a financial transaction. It's a heart transaction. It's a love transaction. Okay? That's myth number one. Myth number two. We often assume that the bigger the gift, the better the giver. Right? We believe that the size of the gift correlates with with the amount of grace in giving. So so rich people are naturally better givers because they can give more, right? They're the ones that we call philanthropists. And I certainly am thankful for those who give big gifts to be able to build hospitals and to build churches and, and schools and to help fund good things. But Paul lays out a different standard here in verses 10 through 12. Listen to this. And here is my advice to you about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. In verse 11, you notice he talks about he talks about giving according to your means. And he says in verse 12, let me read that again. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. See, the amount isn't all that matters. Again, it's a matter of the heart here. Paul, Paul doesn't want the Corinthian believers to give because they are being coerced to give. He wants them to give because they want to give. That's a challenge for us too, isn't it? There's so many reasons why, why those of us who do, do give, why we give. Some of us give because we feel we have to, out of duty. Some of us feel coerced by our parents or, or maybe by our church. Sometimes our motivation to give is guilt. Sometimes it's pride. I can remember when my pride rose up once. I forget where I was I was visiting another church or some concert where they, where they took an offering. And of course, of course, you don't want to look like a heel and not give anything, right? 
when I really wasn't into it. So I thought, well, I'll put my $1 in the, in the bucket as it goes past. So I hauled my wallet out, opened it up. Horror. I only had a 20. What do you do now? Right? You ever been there? You've been. Some of you have been there, of course. So but you put the 20 in. And you think, well, God must be really pleased because I, I gave 20 times more than I intended, right? Well, I think God sees the motivation. I think he totally saw the reluctance in my heart. It wasn't a gift given out of joy and eagerness. God's looking at the heart first, and he sees our reluctance. And he wants to see a willingness. He's looking for a willingness, and he doesn't expect everybody to give the same amount. Instead, he wants people who are willing and who then give according to their ability. right? According to what he has, not what he doesn't have, Paul says. The Corinthian believers have great ability, right? They can give out of abundance. They're financially secure. They're financially sound. They could give from what is left over in their budget, and they'd never even miss it, right? So after they bought their homes, after they bought their camels, after they they bought their boats, whatever they want to buy, buy, they could still give to God and not even really miss it. And so I have no idea, but I can guess Now, the total amount that the Corinthian believers already gave for this offering probably was a lot larger than what the Macedonian believers gave. These poor believers in Macedonia stretched their budget, probably broke their budget, but the amount probably wasn't that great. But the difference is that they gave willingly, and they gave according to their ability, and their gift was celebrated by Paul and by God. It isn't always the size of the gift that's celebrated. More often, it's the size of the heart behind it that God celebrates. Okay? Finally, myth number three. Sometimes we begin to believe and feel like God wants me to give all my money away, right? That God is demanding everything from me. We feel guilty then about having any money at all and enjoying life at all. And sometimes, often, it's us preachers who promote this myth, especially when the church budget isn't doing so well, right? Give more. Give it all. Well, listen, listen to Paul's message in verses 13 through 15. Because our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Paul makes it clear his desire is not that that all of a sudden they would give so much that they are in dire straits in need of an offering. God doesn't usually want us to give until we have to declare bankruptcy. But we do need to recognize, even though God may not... Say, give it all. Recognize, first of all, it all belongs to him, right? It's all his anyways, no matter what we do with it. And God wants us then to give wisely and to be honest with ourselves in our giving. I think that's a big deal. Honesty with ourselves. Because we aren't always very honest with ourselves. Especially when it comes to defining what to want and what to need. A heart that is excelling in the gift of giving won't let someone else's needs go unmet because it's meeting its own wants. 
And it's easy for us to replace the word need with want, isn't it? We all fall into that trap. It holds us back from experiencing the joy that God wants us to have in our giving. Because we need, in our culture, we need so much, don't we? We need that bigger house. We need that newer car. We need that upgraded tech gadget. We need that new wardrobe. We need that, that, that next sports camp that we got to go to. We need that spring break trip. We need so much. And while we're busy covering our needs, someone else's basic needs aren't being met. So while we spend $147 million today on 11 million pounds of potato chips... 20,000 children around the world will die of hunger. 20,000 every single day. Now, God invites us to enjoy the good things in life. He invites us to, to celebrate the blessings that he's given us. So please, have a good time watching the Super Bowl. Eat your share of 11, 11 million pounds of potato chips and enjoy them, okay? But as you do, at least let it cross your mind. At least think about And ask yourself if you have fully given God what he's empowered you to give. Maybe to help the 20,000 children who are going to die today from hunger. Or whatever cause God has laid on your heart. Whatever it is for you. Have you truly stepped up and been honest about what you are able to give? God wants us to be willing and able to give. To wisely meet each other's needs. It's the way he designed us to work. God, God knows what's best for us. It's why he asks us to give. Not because he so desperately needs our finances. Okay, God can get by without my 20 bucks in the offering plate. He doesn't need it. We do. We need to give. God has wired us that way. And he knows what will bring us the most joy and the most contentment in life. He knows because he created us. He knows that true joy and contentment in our lives will not come when we hold on to more of this world for ourselves. He knows that we will find joy and contentment when we learn to excel in the grace of giving. It's how we were made. It's how we are wired. Maybe some of you know the story of John D. Rockefeller. Right? One of the richest men in American history. Right, by age 33, he was a millionaire. And that was back when a million bucks really meant something, right? By age 43, he was a billionaire. By age 53, he was the richest man in the world. And yet it was killing him. They say that at one point in his life, while he's amassing all this wealth, his diet was crackers, soft bread, and milk. That's all he could hold down. His body was, was dying through it all. As he grew older... He learned how to be generous. He discovered the joy of giving. He became a great philanthropist, right? Giving to to hospitals and schools and churches all around the United States, all around the world. And when he began to give, he began to get healthy again. He lived to be 98 years old. I think part of it is because we are wired and we are created to give. God has wired us for generosity. And some of us have our wires crossed. Right? Giving has become a chore instead of a joy. Our money has begun to control us. Our wealth has become our God. 
like the Corinthians. We need to keep excelling in faith and learning how to trust God at all times. We, we need to keep excelling in speech, as we talked about three weeks ago, learning to speak the truth and love to each other. We need to learn how to excel in our speech. We need to continue to excel in knowledge as we learn more and more about God and this world and how we can bring those two things together. We need to keep excelling in love as we build a community here at Ivanrest Church that's full of grace and truly cares. And we must excel in the grace of giving and cultivating a heart of love that is eager to give because we love God and we love his people. Cultivating hands that are eager to respond to God's call, who recognize that we have been blessed so that we might be a blessing. You know, this is, this is the one area in this book, the one area where God dares us to test him. God kind of double-dog dares us here. He says, do this. Be generous. Give. It says in Malachi 3, he says, Test me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have room enough for it. That's not our motivation. We don't give simply so we'll get. I think God's saying that's how you've been wired. If you want to live life to the fullest, if you want to experience life as you have been designed to live, then give. Excel in the grace of giving. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for showing us the path to contentment, the path to true joy. Father, we confess here that we so often hold on to what we can. We live life for ourselves and we have our own plans and purposes in mind and that causes us to to hold on to our own purposes, to hold on to our finances, to hold on to our resources, to, to grab as much time for ourselves. Father, make us people who are generous with all that you've given us, that we might offer all of ourselves down before you. We might offer you our hands and say, take these hands and use them as you will. We offer our time. Say, Father, our time is yours. We give it to you take our feet and to say, Father, if they're yours, I'll go where you want me to go. To take our words and say, Father, my mouth is yours to use. I'll speak what you want me to speak. I'll go talk to that neighbor. I'll talk to that friend. And to offer even, maybe the most difficult part, to offer our wallets and our purses and our bank accounts to you. Thank you for blessing us so richly and inviting us to enjoy those blessings. I thank you for inviting us to give. May we learn to excel.